Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, this is not an alternate universe. Donald Trump really is president. You know, (laughs) Jeff Tiedrich is tweeting, maybe it was a bad idea to put an incompetent racist in charge of the, you know, in the White House. You think? Anyhow, I hope you had a good Fourth of July holiday, and I hope two, three weeks from now we're not seeing the explosion in coronavirus cases that we're seeing right now, two, three weeks, well, four weeks, I think, more or less, down the road from Memorial Day. You know, I'm not holding my breath. On the other hand, on the 4th, Louise and I got in the car and went out and just drove around pretty much the same places we drove around. Not altogether the same places, but pretty much the same. On uh, Memorial Day, just kind of looking at the town and looking at what's going on. And on Memorial Day, it was just filled with people and nobody was wearing masks or, you know, fewer than 10%. The 4th of July, everything was pretty empty. So I think people are getting the message. But... Anyhow, we've got a lot to talk about today. I want to get into uh, how America can stop the Republican Party and their billionaire buddies before they kill another 100,000 people. I have some ideas. I'm soliciting yours as well. And uh, how would you deal with a Trumpster who gets in your face? There's a lot of news, too, that we'll be sprinkling throughout the show. But to start, if a group of international billionaires who don't like democracy... They don't like business regulation because it reduces their profits. And they don't like the idea of a functioning, multicultural, multiracial nation. If they hired somebody specifically to destroy the United States, to throw us back into the worst parts of our past, to exacerbate our tensions, to make this country a more miserable place, to kill as many Americans as possible, to do as much damage that will last for decades to the American economy, they couldn't have done a better job than hiring Donald Trump. Americans are dying from a pandemic disease at rates that we haven't seen in 100 years, while other countries have it under control. A handful of Trump-connected lobbyists have pulled in over $10 billion for their clients in a stunning example of how he has completely corrupted our federal agencies, virtually all of which are under the control specifically of lobbyists who Trump put in charge of these federal agencies. 
And of course, the white racists are on the rise. They're having their movement. The Boogaloo Boys and the whole, the whole bunch of them killing protesters, tearing down statues. Over the weekend, they tore down a statue of Frederick Douglass. You know, as most Americans are watching this freak show of Republican governance, capital R Republican governance, a, a, you know, with horror, there's a small group of American billionaires, and I would say international billionaires, the billionaires who helped put Donald Trump in office. They come from Saudi Arabia, they come from Israel, they come from Russia, they come from China. Seth Abramson's done a great job of uh, compiling the list over in his book of uh, Proof of Conspiracy. Uh, they're just, you know, they're, they're happy, happy. Billionaire Rupert Murdoch. It has his Fox News network running overtime, pumping out racist memes, phony outrage. The right-wing billionaires who fund Freedom Works and other such groups are pushing hard to end unemployment and other benefits, so Americans are forced to return to work, even when it means getting sick and dying. Down in Brazil, President Jair Bolsonaro today or yesterday vetoed legislation that would have provided masks, free masks, to people, poor people living in the slums of Brazil. Well, at least they had a policy to provide everybody with a mask. The Trump administration won't even talk about that. I mean, the policy never got put into place because Bolsonaro vetoed it, but psh. But ever since April 6th, when the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, right across the board, April 6th, everybody reported the breaking story that black people were dying and Hispanics were dying at about twice the rate of white people from COVID-19. Ever since, well, it was, it took a day or two for them to digest it. So it was really April 8th and April 9th. But if you go back and look at the news stories, what you see, and you can see this in the, in the, you know, if you subscribe to the New York Times or the Washington Post, any of these papers just were, you know, you can go back and look at their archives. You will see that it was in the days immediately following April 6th. I pointed this out on this program. I said, this is going to happen on April 7th. I was talking about, this is what's going to happen. And sure enough, within a day or two, it did. April 8th, April 9th, all of a sudden, you had the groups supported by the right-wing billionaires, you had the right-wing media, right-wing hate radio. All of a sudden, it's, oh, it's just a common cold. It's just a flu. We need to go back to work. We need to open the country back up. And, uh, you know, the, the Trump administration basically is working as hard as they can to expand infections. They're even using the force of the federal government to require the largely Hispanic and black workers, about half of them Hispanic, a little over a quarter of them Hispanic, uh, uh, black, excuse me, uh, in the meat processing plants to return to work. The Defense Production Act, you must go back to work. You know, we Americans have gotten quite used to Republicans and their billionaire buddies stealing from us and ripping us off. It's been going on since the 1980s, since the Reagan, Reagan Revolution. That was where it really all began, crushing unions, destroying competition through monopoly. Uh, you know, uh, Walmart went from, you know, 100% made in the USA, Sam Walton's original slogan, to, you know, 100% made in China during the, the 12 years of the 
Reagan-Bush administration. And now it's a standard way of life in this country. We've been ripped up by Republicans and their billionaire buddies. But now, unless you're wealthy enough to safely and comfortably shelter in place, Republicans and their billionaire buddies are openly encouraging the death of more and more Americans. Back in the 1920s, Herbert Hoover ignored the crash in 1929. And therefore, the Republican Great Depression continued for three long years, leading to massive wreckage, including economic damage and torn apart families that echoed through our nation for generations. My mother's family lost everything in the Great Depression. And her mother never, never recovered. Her father had a heart attack. And frankly, she never recovered from that. The Trump Depression and over 100,000 unnecessary deaths show us that a president who is not only incompetent, but also openly malicious, can do even more damage than Herbert Hoover. And Republicans across the country still support him as billionaire-owned and supported media continues to own, pump out a steady stream of pro-Trump propaganda. The Supreme Court handed these white racist billionaires the sword that they're now using against you and me in their Citizens United decision and the ones that preceded it. And if we don't get money out of politics, and if we don't vote every single Republican out of office at all levels, all the way down to dog catcher, this effort to tear America apart and kill more low-income and minority Americans will continue. Anything else is just putting a Band-Aid on cancer. You can find my uh, thoughts on this over at buzzflash.com this morning. Can Americans stop the Republican Party and their billionaire lifeline before another 100,000 die? What do you think? You think we can do it? I'm getting hopeful, actually. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Although, as I said, this, the, the damage that Trump and his billionaire buddies have done, particularly to Gen Z, is going to last for a long, long time. So every week we do a special video. It's available over at TomHartman.com. And I'm talking about the relationship between Donald Trump and Fox News. Trump's recent uh, liberate these states with Democratic governors tweets, which seem to be actually calling for like armed revolt or asking, you know, his his crazy followers to, you know, let's send some pipe bombs or something like one already has to Democrats. He did that two minutes after watching a Fox News segment basically saying the same thing. Fox News is programming the brain of the president, and their programming was you know, basically developed by Roger Ailes to infuriate people. You know, the, this outrage as a way of holding people so that they can sell advertising. Over at TomHartman.com, check it out. Thanks so much. Boy, what a day, huh? <laughs> so much going on. Let's see here, uh, Sherry in Shelton, Washington. Hey, Sherry, what's on your mind today? Good morning, Tom. I'm actually calling regarding the vice presidential choices that Biden is looking mm-hmm. at. And I just think, I think we need to have the conversation be based around the policy positions that the pick will be most helpful to those who have been marginalized and those who are affected by this economy. And I think that's the most important issue right now, because 
there are so many of us that have gone out of the middle class. And so I think Biden is a little more moderate. And I think we need someone who will bring the energy and the passion and young people will get excited. You need someone that's going to excite our base because we I don't want to chase after the Republican base. They don't ever chase ours. You know, we need to chase the Democratic base. And so I'm wondering what you think about that. Yeah, I don't disagree, Sherry. I think that, you know, policy and history is pretty important. And it's one of the reasons why I've been largely tipping my hat to Elizabeth Warren. That said, I get it that in this moment, having a black woman as VP candidate would be a very, very big deal. It's very important to a lot of people. And it would be a very important statement. And that said, while the most prominent of the black women that are being considered as Kamala Harris and she's got nothing compared to Elizabeth Warren in terms of progressive credentials. You know, she's she's more of a, you might call moderate Democrat. And she didn't go um, after Mnuchin. No, as attorney, as, as AG of, uh, of California, yeah. she did not go after That's Mnuchin. That's problematic. Right. But all that said, I keep reminding people that in 1932, Franklin Roosevelt campaigned on balancing the budget. There is this thing called rising to the occasion. And so regardless of who Joe Biden picks, I think that that person and Biden himself are going to have to rise to the occasion. And frankly, I think they will. I, I'm I hope so. slightly people less confident that. about Biden. But yeah, people forget that Obama ran as an FDR candidate. You know, his picture was on yeah. Time magazine all the time comparing him to FDR. We didn't get it. I know. So hopefully know. we'll get it this time. Well, see, the, Thanks, the, the, the time, the, you're welcome. Thank you, Sherry. The, I would just say that the times were different, that, that when Obama was running for president, you know, we were kind of genuinely horrified by George Bush and his wars, his lying us into the war in Iraq and his lying about the need to, to invade Afghanistan after uh, the Taliban had offered to arrest Osama bin Laden and turn him over to us. And George W. was like, no, I want to have a war. You know, that's how you get reelected. But there wasn't this sense of crisis, this widespread sense of crisis. There were a few of us who were yelling about it. I wrote a book called We the People, an illustrated book, actually, about how the George W. Bush presidency was laying down the foundation for a future fascist Republican president. And that book was prescient. I mean, it basically predicted Trump. But most Americans weren't all, you know, hair on fire about that, about George W. Bush. I think they are now about Donald Trump. So I think regardless of who it is, we're going to see some change. Nine years before the oligarchs of the South declared war against the North, because they wanted to preserve slavery. In fact, they wanted to impose slavery in the North. Uh, many of these guys that these monuments have been built to just came right out and said it. Uh, nine years before that began, Frederick Douglass gave a speech saying, what to the slave is the 4th of July? A good and important question. It continues to be a question because slavery is still legal in the United States. The 13th Amendment said that slavery can only exist under the color of law. If somebody is, is charged or convicted of a crime, then they can be held as a slave. And it's still going on in the United States. 
In fact, it's the main reason why we have more prisoners than any other country in the world, free labor. And then on top of that, we find that the police departments that get more 1033 equipment, they kill more people. Check it out at TomHartman.com. Tom Harbin here with you. So my first question, you know, pretty straightforward. Can Americans actually stop the Republican Party and the billionaire lifeline for the Republican Party before, you know, another couple hundred thousand Americans die? I, I think it's pretty much established now that there will be a quarter million dead Americans by Election Day. Can we stop that from becoming a half million or a million or five million? Because that's the course we're heading for. The second question I wanted to ask is how do you deal with a Trumpster who gets in your face? In Albuquerque, New Mexico, over the weekend, there was a pet store. This is a report from KOAT7, Channel 7 TV News in Albuquerque. And a uh, clerk in the store, a guy by the name of Cody, Cody Westfall, this guy walks into the store, into the pet store, with a pistol on his hip. And Cody goes over, and he doesn't have a mask on, and Cody goes over and says, um, do you happen to have a mask that you could put on? And the guy says, you going to make me wear a mask? And kind of puts his hand on his gun. And Cody says, well, you know, it's not only personal preference, but as of yesterday, the state of New Mexico has mandated masks. And the guy looks down at his gun, and then he looks at Cody, and he says, are you sure you're going to try to make me wear a mask? At which point, Cody walks away. The guy leaves the store, and Cody calls the police. Along these same lines, uh, SmartVoter22 over on DemocraticUnderground.com posted this little story this morning. And I'm just, I'm just curious how you would respond in a situation like this. I have my thoughts on this. SmartVoter says, uh, went to the grocery store Friday morning. It was busy. Had my mask on. There was a couple in their 40s looking a bit shabbily dressed, he unshaven, she in pajamas. As I was getting my milk, when she came up behind me, she brushed my shoulders. She grabbed a gallon. Alarmed by the shoulder brush, I yelled, please keep your distance, and quickly stepped away from her. She said, F you. It's spelled out. I can't say it on the air. but And so did I, immediately and very loudly. In other words, yelling F you back at her. No, F you. Get away from me right now. I'm getting milk, and you can wait before you get yours. There's signs all over the store asking you to keep six feet away from people. Her scruffy husband then piped up saying, We don't believe fake news. We don't care. Store clerk came running over. I said to the man, this again is Smart Voter 22 posting over at DemocraticUnderground.com. I said to the man, I don't care what you want to believe. I don't want to catch any diseases that you may carry. He had a blankish stare. I don't think he understood what I'd said. <laughs> the clerk heard me and interrupted us, asking what the problem was. The woman in her pajamas says, I just got my milk. And I replied, you nearly shoved me aside to get your milk when you saw I was already getting some. Can you wait a few seconds to keep a distance? The husband pipes up, we know our rights. We don't believe the virus. Clerk stopped him and said, this is private property, and we can refuse service to anyone. The store is well posted with social distancing all over the store, and we expect our customers to be considerate of others. So then the husband says, F you to the clerk. And the woman throws her gallon of milk on the floor where it breaks open and sprays other customers. 
And at that point, the clerk says, you two are leaving the store right now, and you owe us $2.39 for the milk. As the person writing the story, who, by the way, is on chemo, right? Talk about being concerned about some moron infecting you. As they were leaving the store, the, uh, this couple was still negotiating with store management. So have you had somebody confront you in a store or in a public place? I mean, the closest I've had to this, of course, I haven't gone into a store since March 11th, but the closest I've gotten to this is, you know, walking along this nature path that Louise and I take a walk on every day, and, or the, it's a sidewalk, it's a public sidewalk. And, you know, having, you know, obvious Trump people, you know, people who think that they're patriots, guys wearing, you know, like patriotic t-shirts, march right down the middle of the street, no mask, I'm not getting out of the way, you know, get out of my way kind of thing or jogging past me. I mean, you know, so I haven't had an opportunity to confront anybody. I just step out of the way. But if that happened in a store, man, I would be torn between two instincts. On the one hand, wanting, <laughs> wanting to yell, you know, basically F you back at them, as this person did. And on the other hand, wanting to get as far away from them as possible because not only are they probably infected, if they have, if they have this belief system that it's all a, a liberal plot, then they have been behaving like this for a while, which means that they're much more likely to be infected. So, you know, you don't want that infection. But on the other hand, do you really want to let that kind of behavior just slide? Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. Tom Harbin here with you. Pick up your calls after the break. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash to watch. Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny by Edward J. Watts. This is from the first chapter, which I think is really more like an introduction. This book explains why Rome, still one of the longest lived republics in world history, traded the liberty of political autonomy for the security of autocracy. It's written at a moment when modern readers need to be particularly aware of both the nature of the republics and the consequences of their failure. We live in a time of political crisis when the structures of republics as diverse as the United States, Venezuela, France, and Turkey are threatened. Many of these republics are the constitutional descendants of Rome, and as such, they have inherited both the tremendous structural strengths that allowed the Roman Republic to thrive for so long, and some of the same structural weaknesses that led eventually to its demise. This is particularly true of the United States, a nation whose basic constitutional structure was deliberately patterned on the idealized view of the Roman Republic presented by the 2nd century B.C. author Polybius. This conscious borrowing from Rome's model makes it vital for all of us to understand how Rome's Republic worked what it achieved, and why, after nearly five centuries, its citizens ultimately turned away from it and toward the autocracy of Augustus. No republic is eternal. It lives only as long as its citizens want it. And in both the 21st century AD and the 1st century BC, when a republic fails to work as intended, its citizens are capable of choosing the stability of autocratic rule over the chaos of a broken republic. When freedom leads to disorder and autocracy promises a functional and responsive government, even citizens of an established republic can become willing to set aside long-standing principled objections to the rule of one man and embrace its practical benefits. Rome offers a lesson about how citizens and leaders of a republic might avoid forcing their fellow citizens to make such a tortured choice. Rome shows that the basic, most important function of a republic is to create a political space that is governed by laws, fosters compromise, shares government responsibility among a group of representatives, and rewards good stewardship. Politics in such a republic should not be a zero-sum game. The politician who wins a political struggle may be honored, but one who loses should not be punished. The Roman Republic did not encourage its leaders to seek complete and total political victory. It was not designed to force one side to accept everything the other wanted. Instead, it offered tools that, like the American filibuster, served to keep the process of political negotiation going until a mutually agreeable compromise was found. This process worked very well in Rome for centuries, but it worked only because most Roman politicians accepted the laws and norms of the Roman Republic. They committed to working out their disputes in the political arena that the Republic established rather than through violence in the streets. Republican Rome succeeded in this more than perhaps any other state before or since. If the early and middle centuries of Rome's Republic show how effective this system can be, the last century of the Roman Republic 
reveals the tremendous dangers that result when political leaders cynically misuse their consensus, these consensus-building mechanisms to obstruct a republic's functions. Like politicians in modern republics, Romans could use vetoes to block votes on laws. They could claim the presence of unfavorable religious conditions to annul votes they disliked. And they could deploy other parliamentary tools to slow down or shut down the political process if it seemed to be moving too quickly toward an outcome that they disliked. When used as intended, these tools help promote negotiations and political compromises by preventing majorities from imposing solutions on minorities. But in Rome, as in our world, politicians could also employ such devices to prevent the Republic from doing what its citizens needed. The widespread misuse of these tools offered the first signs of sickness in Rome's Republic. Much more serious threats to Republics appear when arguments between politicians spill out from the controlled environments of representative assemblies and degenerate into violent con confrontations between ordinary people in the streets. Romans had avoided political violence for three centuries before a series of political murders rocked the Republic in the 130s and 120s BC. Once mob violence infected Roman politics, however, the institutions of the Republic quickly lost their ability to control the contexts and content of political disputes. Within a generation of the first political assassination in Rome, politicians had begun to arm their supporters and use the threat of violence to influence the votes of assemblies and the elections of magistrates. Within two generations, Rome fell into civil war, and two generations later, Augustus ruled as Roman emperor. When the Republic lost the ability to regulate the rewards given to political victors and the punishments inflicted on the losers of political conflicts, Roman politics became a zero-sum game in which the winner reaped massive rewards and the losers often paid with their lives. Above all else, the Roman Republic teaches the citizens of its modern descendants the incredible dangers that come along with condoning political obstruction and courting political violence. Roman history could not more clearly show that when citizens look away as their leaders engage in these corrosive behaviors, the Republic is in mortal danger. Unpunished political dysfunction prevents consensus and encourages violence. In Rome, it eventually led Romans to trade the Republic for the security of an autocracy. This is how a Republic dies, mortal Republic. So in a apparent response to my question about how do you deal with a Trumpster in your face, uh, Mr. Resistance Stevie over on Twitter says, here's a conspiracy theory to lob at your Trumper family. Tell them COVID-19 is a liberal plan to kill off all Trump supporters. Libs created the virus with China's help to take out everyone who doesn't wear a mask. And that's the Trumpers. What do you think? So somebody confronts you in the supermarket, you say, oh, I, I, you, know, <laughs> you know, you're not wearing a mask, you're going to die. I, you know, I guess our liberal plot is succeeding. Or you turn to the person next to you going, you know, it looks like our plan is succeeding, Joe. The, uh, the conservatives aren't wearing masks and they're going to get sick and die. Yeah, very interesting. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but what do you think? Carmen in Philadelphia. Hey, Carmen, you, you had experience with a Trumpster? A couple of days ago, I know you don't come to Philly that often, but there's a train line called the Market Frankfurt L. Mm -hmm. And I was on this particular line, 
you know, because I had to do some shopping in downtown Philadelphia. Now, a young man gets up in my face, you know, no mask, and I stuck my hand out to keep him from getting too close to me. And he said, mm-hmm. old lady, don't tell me you believe that liberal BS about this virus. Trump says it's not real. It's a hoax. It's not for real. It's BS. And I said, well, you know what? Mm-hmm. Just like you had your choice to believe him and not wear a mask, I have a choice and the right to believe the doctors and the scientists and I'm going to wear a mask and I'm going to practice social distancing. Just like you have a choice not to wear a mask. And he said, mm-hmm. well, old lady, how would you like it if I took your mask off? Now, well, like you, Tom, I'm a baby boomer. And my mother raised me that you don't hit anyone unless they put their hands on you first. Mm-hmm. So this young man reached out to try to grab my mask. And I slapped him. Now, unbeknownst to both of us, there was a SEPTA police officer on the train, and he saw and heard everything that happened with this exchange. And he got up from where he was sitting, and he walked over. He put his hand on the young man's shoulder. You, I'm going to talk to you. And he looked at me, and the cop looked at me, and he said, Where are you getting off at, miss? I said, 15th Street. He said, okay, good. He said, when you get off at 15th Street, no, nothing more to be said. Go on about your business. He said, but you, I want to talk to you. So when my stop came off, up, I got up and left and went on about my day. Yeah, quite that's a story, it. Carmen. Carmen, I congratulate you on uh, on standing up. I mean, that's that's. Uh, I guess I've just spent my whole life being averse to uh, to conflict, which is a weird thing to say for somebody who's a, a talk show host who makes his living debating conservatives. But at least physical conflict. Maybe it's because I was bullied as a kid or something. But Carmen, I tip my hat to you. Congratulations. Thanks a lot for the call and thanks for sharing your story with us, Paul in Sparta, Wisconsin. You have a story. Yeah, thanks, Tom, for taking my call. I was at the local gas station here a couple weeks ago, had my mask on, had my gloves on, putting gas in my car. Well, a big old burly biker pulls up beside me on the other side of the gas pump and just stares. So I went on into the store and paid for my gas and come back out, and he's still staring at me. And so as I opened my door and took my mask off and got ready to get in my car, I heard this, you mask wearing a name for a cat. I'm sure you understand. Okay, yeah. And uh, so, you know, I thought about it for a second. I threw my door back open, threw my mask on, stepped around the pump, and said, hey, big man, if you think you can take this off of me, you're more than welcome to step up. And we sat there for about 25 or 30 seconds, and he just looked at me, and I just turned around and walked away. I said, well, I thought so. I didn't think you had it in you. And just got in my car and left. Wow. Were you uh, substantially physically bigger than him? Uh, I'm I'm 5'11", about 260, got a long beard. I'm an old man. I'm in my 60s. -hmm. But we were about the same size. He had maybe 100 pounds more on me. But, you know, I'm I'm not scared of these people. They're just, they're they're idiots. I work at a, I work at a commissary. At, at, at where I work at, and you see every once in a while people walking in without masks, and I confront them, and there's nothing they can do because nobody in that building is my boss. 
so I can get away yeah. with that. You know, it's it's, it's <laughs> my wife. Well, you're in you're in Wisconsin. Is is it my mandated? My wife and I both cannot go out because we both have underlying conditions. We go to work. Right. We come home. I've stayed in my house for I'll bet you almost three and a half, four months now. I'm tired of it, yeah. but I don't want to lose my wife. Yep. Yeah, it's a tough one. It's a real tough one. And the poorest among us are the ones who are really bearing the brunt of this because the working poor generally don't have an, an option other than going back to work. And in many cases, those are the frontline jobs. It's got to be really, really tough. Paul, thank you for the call. And thanks for sharing your story with us. John in Minneapolis. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to, you know, not to change the subject, which is very interesting, <laughs> to say the least. You know, about, you know, the economy, the billionaire class has made $550 billion off of the failed policies of Donald Trump. And even if they lose, you know, if the stock market, say, were to lose half its value, they will still be there with billions. And this is the problem that we've put so much emphasis and so much faith in billionaires to trickle down their wealth, which they never do, and essentially steal from us. And, uh, you know, it goes on, and the political class really is almost powerless, even if they want to do anything about it, because they're so entrenched in, entrenched in Washington, D.C., with their lobbyists, and then, you know, Fox News and all the other BS that we have to deal with. I think it's changing, but there's really, I think, no impetus for them to change. You know, they're making money. They can isolate themselves. In fact, they can afford an island. They have gated communities and people to wait on them hand and foot. And so what do they care? They don't really, they're not really citizens of this country. They're only in, interested in themselves. That's, pure, that's why we're yeah, the in system, the, the, the system is set up so that the people who are the most marginal in our mm-hmm. economy are also those who are, who are right. you know, most vulnerable. And, and, it, and I don't think, frankly, that's an accident. No, uh, it's know, not. This, it's, this I, is how capitalism has been, has been structured for thousands of years. Yep, and it's by design, and unless we do something about that, then we're never going to change this process that goes on. And, you know, in the last, you know, 2009, they had basically scammed the financial system in their favor. And, you know, people, there's a meme out there, even on public radio, that they paid it all back. But ProPublica actually did some research into that, and a lot of those billions of dollars, were, or maybe even trillions of dollars, weren't paid back. So they, yeah, it it's, it's socialism for them and death for the bottom. That's what they're yeah. really all about. Yeah. We, we need to get rid of yep. it. You know, I'm yep. done. Amen. With John, thank you. Uh, well said. Jo- uh, from John in Minnesota to John in Minnetonka, Minnesota. Hey, John, what's on your mind? Min- we got about a minute to the break. Min- Minnetonka. No, I had a uh, yes. confrontation at a, uh, uh, over mask at a uh, computer store. I'm 67. I'm a big guy. I'm 61. The guy about... In his 30s, about 6'5", about 300 pounds, got into my space. I had a mask on, and I stepped away. He stepped right up next to me. I stepped away again. He stepped right up next to me. I stepped away and said, will you please keep some space here? And he said, I don't have to MF do anything. I, I can do anything I want to. You can't tell me what to do. And I said, I'm wearing a mask to protect you. You can at least protect me. And he clenched his fist. Yeah, you want to try to make me wear one? You know, and I said, go ahead and swing if you want. I will have you arrested, and I'll sue the crap out of you. At that point, the store employee stepped in. Uh, I went back wow. the next day because in all that, I'd gotten the wrong P 
piece. I went back, and they had somebody at the front door. They had masks, handing them out, and sanitizer, mm-hmm. and said, you cannot come into the store without a mask. And I asked, I asked, said, is this because of what happened yesterday? So I recognized the cashier that I had, had taken care of me. He said, yep, we're not allowing anybody in the store without a mask. Good, good. Well, good on you, John. You know, stories of people standing up here. I'm impressed. That's, that's great. John, thank you for the call. Remarkable stuff. Remarkable stuff. What would you do? In a situation like this, if you haven't had this guy, you know, we, we all kind of imagine these uh, things in our heads and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be the superhero in my imagination. But real life sometimes is a little different. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Stick around. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Coming up on The Science Revolution, I'm asking, will the new definitions of first world and third world be those countries that have the virus under control and those countries that don't? 
Connor Gibson with Greenpeace USA is here about three states making protesting fossil fuel pipelines a felony. Is protesting becoming illegal now? Robert Weissman with Public Citizen drops by. He's concerned about Trump's land management pick. The guy's a climate-denying extremist. I'm concerned, too. Kevin Camps from Beyond Nuclear is telling us about even more nuclear waste that they want to bury under New Mexico's desert. Plus, geeky science. Does sitting cause cancer? Tune into The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dennis in Aptos, California. Hey, Dennis, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Yeah, well, uh, ironically enough, 1968, the documentary was on CNN last night. I keep kind of. I missed that. Was it any good? Oh, yeah. You know, the, the good part is, well, it's the bad part, really, about Robert Kennedy and. Uh, mm. Boy, would things have changed a lot if he would have lived and become president. And, you know, again, it reminds me also about 2000. People throw threw away their vote on Nader instead of voting for Gordon. The reason I'm bringing about mm-hmm. that is something that happened in a, in a uh, shoe store, a running shoe store, the other day here in Aptos. And I went in, and they only allow like four people in at a time, and I had my mask on. I was looking for some socks, and there was this lady in there who was trying on shoes, very elderly. She looked like she was well into her 80s. She was wearing the least effective face covering, which is a kerchief, and Mm -hmm. she was telling the sales clerk that it's just horrible that we were made to, you know, stay indoors all these months and we need to be out there, you know, enjoying the sunshine and this and that. And people's mental health was deteriorating because of the lockdown. And then I just had to say something. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This lady didn't look like she supports Trump. Quite Mm -hmm. different. But she's the type of person who probably voted for Nader or Stein, or, and this year it'll be whoever is the peace and freedom candidate. So she's not going to vote for Biden. You know, just extreme, extreme left wing. So it's not just the extreme, you know, the right wing, the Trump hands We have these very extremist left wing people who also don't want to wear masks and think this is a hoax, too. They call it a pandemic. Really? Yes. Really? And around here in I've not encountered a single one, Dennis. They're around here in Santa Cruz, and not only that, they're on the Internet. Malcolm Nance said, you know, the political spectrum is kind of like a circle, and and the most extreme leftists are basically extreme right wing, too. You know, they they become one of the same. And, you know, I I told that lady, I said, you know what, 130,000 plus people have died, and I don't want to be one of one of them. And I'm perfectly happy to be home most of the day. I get outside for about an hour, hour and a half every day, and I make sure I go to places where there's hardly any people. And that's what Mm -hmm. I do. I go to a local county park where there's very, very few people there, big soccer fields and all that, and a big track going around the whole thing. I mean, it's probably about two miles if you walked around the whole park, which is great. Mm -hmm. And I could run there or walk, and I always have my mask with me to put on if I uh, encounter people. But, you know, that's just an example of someone who, this woman didn't look like she would vote for Trump. But she's spouting yeah, this well, nonsense. You, you, you're doing a lot of mind reading here, Dennis. But uh, how did she respond to your your uh, in, in saying, you know, 
this is real. Well, I only could see her eyes. And to me, it looked like it went in one ear and out the other. It didn't register. Yeah, like, like a giant shrug. Yeah. Okay. Dennis, thanks for the call. Fascinating. Oh, my. Here on the Tom Hartman program, your media support group for We the People. Back with more of your calls. Tom Harmon here with you, and uh, boy, what a fascinating day. I've got Dean Obadala on the line. My colleague over on Sirius XM does a, just an absolutely spectacular show there from uh, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Sirius XM Progress, channel 127. He's a columnist for the Daily Beast and writes some really, really brilliant stuff. Dean of Radio.com is his website. His Twitter handle is at Dean Obadala. And Dean, welcome back to the program. It's great having you You've been writing about how this uh, anti-Muslim hate crime in deep red Missouri produced an unexpected Mm -hmm. show of love. Say what? What happened is, first of all, Donald Trump numerous times during his presidency and obviously during the campaign 2016 ginned up hate of Muslims. He understood that played well with the GOP base. Donald Trump did not teach Republicans to hate Muslims. He just realized it plays well. And it's a point I make on my show that Donald Trump is not an aberration. He's a manifestation of what the GOP has been working towards. So he learned that during the campaign. He continues here and there, the genocide of Muslims. So last month, he retweeted a vile anti-Muslim bigot, a guy named Paul Sperry, who he was retweeting again yesterday, who the Anti-Defamation League has called Paul Sperry an anti-Muslim blogger for his spewing of hate of Muslims. Well, Paul Sperry had tweeted... Right before Ramadan began, let's see if authorities enforce social distancing order for mosques during Ramadan, like they did churches during Easter. And he put the dates of Ramadan, and that jumped out at me because that was really putting a target on the back of Muslims. We knew that. Everyone in our community, when we saw Trump retweet him, knew exactly what Trump was doing there. was telling people, here's Ramadan, go to their mosque. While you're not liberating states, go to the mosque, do something there. And that's what happened. Five days later, a mosque in Missouri got burned down by a man who has a history of anti-Muslim bigotry. Hmm. And that's the sad part of it. And the beautiful part, can we tell you the beautiful part, what happened next? Sure, please. Yeah, I'm waiting. Okay, so you want to hear the good part. I I focus on the (laughs) Trump that gets us here part. What happened was the people in the city is Cape Girardeau, Missouri. It's about 40,000 people. They're about 100 miles south of St. Louis. In Missouri, this is a county that voted 75% for Donald Trump. This is a very red county. The people in this community didn't just do the perfunctory, we stand with you. They, they not only went out of their way and raised money to help Muslims rebuild their mosque, the city, the official city, put a veto together in one day interviewing police members, fire people, the head of the Chamber of Commerce, mayor, council people, saying... They cut it all together in a video and put it on the official city website saying, we love you to the Muslims. We stand with you. We're here with you. Uh, You've got nothing to fear. And it was remarkable to see the contrast of what we see from other Trump supporters. I'm sure many were Trump supporters, just the nature of where it is, who weren't selfish, who were actually compassionate and caring and generous. And it said to me that there are 
some people on the right who, who are who are still caring, who are still at the end of the day, we're all Americans. There are some Trump supporters, I, I cannot pretend, who are vile and despicable, who are beyond selfish. They're cruel. And that's who Trump is. So and the person who did it got arrested, by the way. He had a long history of anti-Muslim bigotry. In fact, he had vandalized his very mosque years ago and went to jail for three years for doing it. Now, 10 years later, wow. he's living his life. And to me, it's not a coincidence Trump says this stuff. There's a study that was done a couple of years ago which showed within days of Trump's anti-Muslim tweets, there were a statistical correlation of anti-Muslim hate crimes that manifested in the real world. And I think this is one of them. So I'm glad he was arrested. I'm so happy for the response. It's a beautiful, it's during Ramadan. So it was great to see this happen. Over on Facebook, Trump has been trashing Governor Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan. This doesn't have so much to Mm -hmm. do with religion, I think, as it does gender and arguably political affiliation. But I'm laying this out because I've got a larger question for you, Dean. Over on this Mm -hmm. Facebook group, can we please take up a collection for an assassination to put that woman from Michigan down? writes somebody. This is the people of Michigan versus Governor Gretchen Whitmer Facebook group. Another Mm -hmm. one says, we need a good old-fashioned lynch mob to storm the Capitol, drag a tyrannical ass out on the street and string her up as our forefathers would have done, wrote a guy named John Campbell Sr. Dave Meisenheimer of this uh, group Michiganders Against Excessive Quarantine, which has 385,000 members, said, we haven't had any bloodshed yet, but next comes watering the tree of liberty with the blood of tyrants. I mean, we see these kinds of things. You know, we saw this with Lindbergh in the 40s. We see this with Trump now. And yet at the same time, when we pull back Mm -hmm. the lens of history in a really, really, you know, a 30,000, 50,000 foot view, you saw this kind of racism burn across Europe, burn across Germany. And yet when World War II was over and the racist crimes of Hitler were exposed, there was three generations of revulsion against it over the short term and over the long term. What is the impact, in your opinion, Dean, of this kind of racist and misogynistic and religiously bigoted rhetoric and behavior? And what does it take to burn it out? What does it take where it gets so bad that there's a backlash? I remember the, you know, when the Nazis marched in Skokie, Illinois, there was a pretty substantial backlash mm-hmm. against those Nazis. In fact, they never even marched. They just won the Supreme Court case. Everybody right. thinks they marched. They didn't do it. And that was part of the backlash. And there were, you know, so, you know, I think after the Edmund Pettus Bridge, there was kind of a softening, although, you know, that's still going on. And, you know, we've got a young black man in Georgia being hunted down by guys, you know, shooting from the back of a truck. In the arc of history here, what lessons are to be learned? Dean Ovidal. I think this is such a painful time that we're going through. I have such grave concerns for our country that I've never had before. And I often catch myself on my show, Tom, saying things that if I was a step back, I'd say, wow, this person's so hyperbolic. What is wrong with him? But I can assure you, I believe every single thing I'm saying, just like you say it. And years ago, during Bush, if I had a radio show, I would have not been saying the same language I'm saying about Donald Trump. Donald Trump is not, Donald Trump is their leader. He's more than their leader. He's their grand wizard. Donald Trump says liberate Michigan. We know what that meant. We knew exactly what that meant. And for these people who wear boogaloo on their clothes, which means a civil war they dream of, and they wear their luau shirts, which, again, is about their civil war they dream of, they feel like they have actually an ally in the president of the United States of America. And to me, none of these people, Donald Trump didn't create. 
Right. Donald Trump didn't create the three percenters or the neo-Nazis or the Aryan Nation, the Aryan Brotherhood. They've been there. They just have never had in modern day an ally in the White House. They have this now. And to me, step one is November 3rd, defeating Donald Trump, really coming out and defeating him handily. Step two is then pushing these fringe groups back to the fringe of society where they belong. The same way, Tom, that there are no longer two sides, at least they're not supposed to be, to racism and anti-Semitism and, and homophobia and anti-Muslim bigotry. And it's not always true, but that's the dream. That's what we hope for. The same thing with these guys. They're, they have the right to speak. I'll defend their right to speak, but they should not be celebrated by the White House. They should be alienated and pressed to the fringe of society where they can meet in the basement of a bar on Tuesday nights like Fight Club and hang out and talk about how bad America is. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Dino Badala, check out his show if you haven't before on uh, Sirius XM on this channel on Progress 127, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern, 3 to 6 p.m. Pacific time. And by the way, you don't have to have a satellite receiver. Sirius XM streams on the Internet as well. DeanofRadio.com is his website. Dean, thank you for dropping by. You're Thanks, Tom. I appreciate it, Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is No Visible Bruises, What We Don't Know About Domestic Violence Can Kill Us by Rachel Louise Snyder. I'm reading from the preface. This is page four. Suzanne and I exchanged small talk on her brother's driveway that day in 2010. She and the family were still in preparation and packing mode for their annual camping vacation into the hinterlands of Maine. And Suzanne had been greeted by her brother Andre with a long shopping list. She told me she worked for a domestic violence agency in town and that they had recently developed a new program that she was calling the Domestic Violence High Risk Team. Their primary aim was simple, she said. We try to predict domestic violence homicides before they happen so we can prevent them. It sounded immediately implausible. So implausible, in fact, that I thought I'd misheard some elemental piece of it. Predict, I remember saying? You said predict domestic violence homicides? I had come across domestic violence in my reporting over the years, not only in Cambodia, but also in places like Afghanistan, Niger, and Honduras. But it had never been a focus for me. Instead, it was always adjacent to whatever other story I was writing, so much so that it was practically banal. The young girls jailed for love crimes in Kabul, the Indian child brides who gave interviews only in front of the men who controlled them, the Tibetan women forcibly sterilized by the Chinese government, the teenage brides in Niger cast from their villages after post-pregnancy fistulas made them pariahs, the Romanian women forced to birth multiple children under Ceausescu and who now in their early 30s were grandmothers fated to poverty, the Cambodian street workers beaten and gang-raped for weekend sport by well-heeled Khmer teenagers. All of these women in every country were brutalized and controlled by men as a matter of routine. Men made the rules, primarily through physical violence. It was there lurking in practically every story I'd ever covered around the world, a shadowy background so obvious I didn't even have to ask about it most of the time. It was as common as rain. Until that moment in the driveway with Suzanne Dubas, if I thought of domestic violence in the United States at all, I saw it as an unfortunate fate for the unlucky few, a matter of bad choices and cruel environments. A woman hardwired to be hurt. But I never envisioned it as a social ill, an epidemic we can actually do something about. Now here was Susan Dubas talking about preventative measures for a type of violence that, for the first time, I saw operating along a continuum. 
The young girl in India married as a child. The Tibetan woman sterilized. The Afghan woman jailed. The housewife in Massachusetts brutalized by her husband. They all shared a common privation, what domestic violence victims across the world lacked, agency in their own lives. The forces that brought a Cambodian prostitute to the brink of death were the same forces that killed thousands of women and children and men, but mostly women and children, across America and the entire globe every year. An average, in fact, of 137 women each and every day are killed by intimate partner or familial violence across the globe. And this does not include men or children. Everything in my body suddenly came alive that day. I saw all the faces of women around the world from over two decades of work, and I realized how rarely I'd gazed inward at my own country, at what we got wrong and what it meant. The universality of domestic violence and how it crisscrosses geographical, cultural, and linguistic barriers. Maybe all those other stories were in preparation for the day that I'd meet Paul Monson and look at the mountains from his living room windows. I ended up following Suzanne to the farmer's market and then to the grocery store and then to the liquor store as she prepped for her camping trip. I helped her carry ice and peaches and hamburger meat. I asked question after question while she drove and while her mother Pat sat in the passenger seat chiming in here and there. How did it work? How many have you stopped? What else can you predict? My questions were vast and endless. Like many people who hold a casual acquaintance with a problem, I believed all the common assumptions. That if things were bad enough, victims would just leave. That restraining orders solved the problem. And that if a victim didn't show up to renew a restraining order, the problem had been solved. That going to a shelter was an adequate response for victims and their children. That violence inside the home was something private, unrelated to other forms of violence perhaps most notably mass shootings. The lack of visible injury signaled a lack of seriousness. And perhaps most of all, that unless we stand at the receiving end of a punch, such violence had nothing to do with us at all. Over the next few years, Suzanne Dubas and her colleague Kelly Dunn patiently taught me about the scope and history of an issue that still today is too often hidden. I learned why past approaches had failed and what we could do more effectively today. Between 2000 and 2006, 3,200 American soldiers were killed. During that same period, domestic homicide in the United States claimed 10,600 lives. This figure is likely an underestimate as it was pulled from the FBI's supplementary homicide reports, which gathered data from local police departments and participation is voluntary. 20 people in the United States are assaulted every minute by their partners. Former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan called violence against women and girls the most shameful human rights violation. And the World Health Organization called it a global health problem of epidemic proportions. A study put out by the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime cited 50,000 women around the world were killed by partners or family members in 2017 alone. 50,000 women. The UNODC report called home the most dangerous place for women. The book, No Visible Bruises, by Rachel Louise Snyder. And Todd in Yucca Valley, California. Hey, Todd, what's up? Hey, how are you doing? I, I really love your show. And, you know, concerning Trump, over the weekend he made some very derogatory and negative comments towards educators. In contrast to Joe Biden's positive messages, and uh, Trump even came out and said that teachers are instructing kids to hate America. I wonder when the last time he was in a classroom, actually, and it would be interesting to see how he would perform against the uh, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader group. 
On a serious yeah. note, I think with masks, I had an idea that if the government or if we could have had masks distributed through Amtrak around the major cities and utilizing the Postal Service to get them out to people, that would have been very beneficial. Well, that's, you know, Todd, that that is a variation on what Jair Bolsonaro, you know, and what the Brazilian legislature did was we're going to deliver a mask to every single poor person in the country. And Bolsonaro said, oh, no, you don't. You're not going to raise taxes on rich people to pay for masks. That ain't going to happen. Remarkable. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.